Ah, Sunday again. I just love a Sunday. How are you this morning, Ben? I'm doing good. How are you? Wonderful, I must say. I live for the weekends. That's not true. Where would I be without the weekdays, honestly? Um, The Newfoundland Labrador Winter Games kicked off yesterday out of Gander. Yeah, they are underway. The first half of the games goes until the 27th. The second half picks up February 28th to March 2nd. And uh, yeah, definitely looking forward to more on that badminton, cross-country skiing. Uh, gymnastics, mm-hmm. hockey, curling, basketball, table tennis. I mean, you wow. name it. Figure yeah. skating. And we'll be checking in on the daily throughout this coming yep. week to keep people posted and up to date on the very latest from the Newfoundland and Labrador Winter Games. Love the Newfoundland and Labrador Winter Games. Were you love ever the summer part games of it? Too. Yep. But um, really love the Winter Games just because I'm a hockey guy. You know yeah. that. Um, not that <laughs> I didn't play all kinds of sports, but always a hockey guy through and through. Love the Winter Games. Love the Summer Games and can't wait for those in Bay Roberts. But uh, yeah, the Winter Games in Gander and we will have updates for you. As those games continue, some results each and every morning. We'll chat with uh, some of the athletes, some of the organizers, and uh, it's just a great time. It is, it is, and it'll be a full week. Now, this past week that we're coming through, it was a shorter <sighs> week because Monday was family day here at Stingray Media, but that doesn't mean the news slowed down in any way, shape, or form. No, it was a very busy week news-wise. Lots of government uh, announcements. We had the Hospitality Newfoundland and Labrador yep. Trade show and conference that was taking place at the Delta Hotel. Uh, lots of people in attendance there, a lot of good conversations. But yeah, it was a busy news week. It was lots of announcements, lots of coverage of all different aspects and angles of your news. So let's take a look back at the best of this week, shall we? Grab yourself a cup of coffee. Maybe you're a tea drinker. Piece of toast. Maybe you like biscuits. And join us right here on the best of your VOCM morning. Good Sunday morning and welcome to the best of your VOCM mornings. We're here with you for the rest of this hour. I'm Jerry Lynn Mackey. And I'm Ben Murphy. Many seniors are alone and lonely and it's not good for their physical and mental well-being. The World Health Organization recently warned that loneliness is a global public health concern. Dr. Barbara Neves is a senior lecturer at Monash University. She studies loneliness, isolation, and exclusion among older people. She's delivered more than 73 talks across five continents, including one at Memorial University back in late 2023. We reached Dr. Neves in Australia on Tuesday morning. Yes, so we know that global data suggests that between 20 to 25 percent of older people and then between 5 to 15 percent of young people experience loneliness worldwide. But we actually do not have really robust global data to compare yet. So I think one of the main aims of this WHO Commission on Social Connection was to indeed look at that kind of global landscape. And this is, of course, a reflection of the growing public concern across countries with the impact of loneliness on the health of individuals and communities. And in fact, the UK government was actually the first in the world to appoint a minister for loneliness back in 2018 and then follow it was followed by Japan in 2021. So this is something that it's not new, but it is becoming more and more a global concern. So what impact does loneliness have on the health of older people? Yes, yeah, so loneliness has really harmful effects on the health and the quality of life of older people, so those age 65 and over, I would say that first of all, loneliness causes really deep emotional pain. And so my research participants who are older people living with prolonged loneliness tell me that it is, and I'm using their words here, the worst bloody feeling in the world. It makes them feel rejected and abandoned. Most of them cry themselves to sleep. And then in addition to this horrible emotional distress, loneliness increases the risk of depression, of cardiovascular disease, stroke, chronic pain, uh, physical and cognitive decline, and then dementia in middle life. We know that, for example, loneliness increases the risk of dementia by 40%, regardless of gender, of education, of race and ethnicity, and even regardless of the genetic risk factors. And so this is really a serious health issue. And then, of course, loneliness reduces public participation and civic engagement, contributing to social exclusion. 
Who's more likely to be lonely, those living alone or those in care, and, and why? Yeah, so living alone doesn't mean that we uh, will experience loneliness. So if you live alone, it doesn't mean that you will experience loneliness. That actually depends on age, on life stage, on your personal and social circumstances. But for older people, which is the group that I study, we know that living alone and in care homes while dealing with health issues that uh, really restrict opportunities for social connection, increase vulnerability to loneliness. At the moment, the data is suggesting that people in care homes, in nursing homes, actually have higher levels of loneliness. The incidence of loneliness in care homes is between 35 to 61 percent, which is extremely high. And it's also extremely surprising for people because most of us assume that in a care home, in a nursing home, that's lots of other people around, so you wouldn't feel lonely. But the problem is that loneliness is about meaningful companionship. It's about quality of relationships, not quantity. We're speaking with Dr. Barbara Neves, a senior lecturer at Monash University, joining us this morning from Australia. And Dr. Neves, you've extensively studied loneliness, isolation, and exclusion among older people living in care homes and alone. Mm -hmm. What would you say is the most significant finding from your research? Hmm. So um, our research shows that loneliness is not just an individual issue. It's a social issue as well. And that means that Although it is, of course, felt by the person, by the individual, it is linked to social contexts. As I was saying, loneliness relates to that lack of meaningful social relationships. It's when our social needs are not met, are not satisfied by our social connections. But we also live in more individualistic societies that really praise independence and self-sufficiency. And so those social and societal contexts really shape our feelings and relationships. And that is why that I would say that perhaps one of the most significant findings of my research is about the social stigma of being lonely in later life. Older people in our studies in Australia and in Canada do not tell their families, friends and caregivers that they feel lonely because of how it might impact their sense of self, their sense of dignity. They do not want to be seen as a failure or as a burden. So our participants already feel stigmatized because they are old, they are frail, they are dependent on care, especially in a society that is so obsessed with being and looking young or where, unfortunately, care is seen as a cost. And so admitting to loneliness brings another layer of stigma that it's really hard to deal with. And one of our participants, Bob, in his late 70s, told us very eloquently that loneliness feels like uh, being back on the playground when we were a kid and realizing that no one wants to play with you. And so it brings a lot of shame and embarrassment. And Dr. Neves, we know Newfoundland and Labrador has the oldest and most rapidly aging population in Canada. And how concerned should we be about loneliness as a threat to the mental and physical health of our seniors here in the province? We should be very concerned. I should emphasize, though, that loneliness is not a universal experience in middle life. So not all older people will be lonely. But we do know that it tends to affect those who live alone or, or in care homes. So we need to ensure we are supporting older people as they age. And your beautiful province that I had the pleasure of visiting last year uh, has a very extensive territory with a big proportion of the population residing away from services, which can make accessing care challenging for older people, for seniors. And as families become smaller and the number of single households rise, it is really important to find effective ways to ensure that older people feel socially connected and included as they age. So we must really look at loneliness as a serious public health issue in the context of an aging population. There has been a kind of push to look at technology as a, as a solution and to implement technology-based initiatives to tackle loneliness. But we also need to consider factors like a poor infrastructure, cost, digital skills that affect technology adoption, especially in remote and isolated communities. So I think that to connect communities effectively and really ensure lasting impact, we need to first value the input of those communities, which is what we don't do. We need to develop with and for them. 
and solutions and approaches that fit within existing resources and contexts and that they are flexible and can be personalized. And so we have this larger public and government engagement that, that is necessary. Uh, but we also have, and if I may uh, uh, say that loneliness is a social issue. And so that means that we all have a role to play in addressing it. And so we know that older people are reluctant to disclose their loneliness. They do not want to be labeled, as my participants say, lonely oldies. And so it is on us as well, communities, to reach out to our older loved ones, our older neighbors, our older friends. And so I would like to ask your listeners to really consider checking on your older neighbors, especially if they live alone. And I could hear that there's a lot of snow <laughs> there. Engaging meaningful conversations when you reach out Go beyond the usual quick chit chat and really look at establishing meaningful conversations to listen to people, to take time to engage in deeper interactions and then involve older people in a way that make them feel included and valued, show that we are interested in their opinions and their life experience and we can learn so much from them as well. And so I would say that, yes, we need to be thinking about loneliness as a public health issue that requires public and government initiatives, but we can also play a role in destigmatizing and fighting loneliness. And I think this is a collective effort that we can all contribute to. And that is Dr. Barbara Neves, a senior lecturer at Monash University who studies loneliness, isolation, and exclusion among older people. The World Health Organization recently warned that loneliness is a global public health concern. Over to you, Jerry Lynn. Yeah, well, it was Tech Talk Tuesday this week. We had it turbocharged with artificial intelligence. We talked about Meta's mission to unmask and mark fake AI images. We also compared and contrasted Canadian and American AI antics in political campaigns. We also took a deep dive into the dangers of automated artificial intelligence, spotlighted by Air Canada's chatbot legal dispute. We had a grand chat with our tech expert that's kevin andrews so with the rise of artificial intelligence to generate fake images and i'm sure all of our listeners can probably say they've seen a fake ai image at that point whether they realize it or not and accurately identifying and labeling this content has become a pressing issue so meta the parent company of facebook and instagram has announced plans to tackle this challenge by deploying tech to detect and label images created by other companies ai tools so However, questions do still remain about the effectiveness of these tools and their vulnerability to evasion. Kevin, what specific actions is Meta taking to address fake eye images on its platforms? So it looks as if uh, Meta is taking more of a comprehensive approach to address these fake AI images uh, through its platforms. And, and, and they say, you know, their plan is to use technology to detect and, and label images created by other companies' AI tools and, and expanding this capability to identify uh, such content on, on Facebook and Instagram and threads. And so, you know, Meta hopes this initiative will set an example for the industry and, and encourage others to combat, uh, sort of combat AI-generated fake Images. Now, uh, despite these proactive measures, there are concerns regarding the effectiveness and the, I guess, pot uh, potential limitations that these detection tools have. And, and experts have warned that, you know, these tools might only be capable of detecting images created by certain AI models and allowing people to really avoid detection by making minor changes to these images. Also, too, I think there's, there's risk of what they call false positives, uh, where legitimate images could be incorrectly identified as AI generated. And, and again, this raises questions about the reliability of the detection system itself. And, 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 and two as well, I think you know, it's also worth noting that Meta's current detection and labeling technology is really tailored for just images and it doesn't really extend to audio and video content, which, which are really now also susceptible to this AI manipulation. So you know, I think the bottom line here is that AI detection will likely involve a combination of traditional you know, technological advancements and, and regulatory measures to really address the challenge challenges posed by all of this AI-generated content. And so there's a good probability that, you know, this type of content will increase. And, and without any safeguards, there's a really high risk of increasing this misinformation and really deception throughout our digital spaces. Yeah, and speaking of safeguards, while American regulators and state legislatures are swiftly implementing new rules governing the use of AI tools in political campaigns, Canadian authorities are taking a more cautious approach. And in a year where three provinces are set to hold general elections, the use of AI tools by Canadian campaigners 
appears to be in its early stages. So, Kevin, can you comment on how Canadian authorities are approaching the use of AI in political campaigns compared to their American counterparts? So, really good question because a lot of people are talking about this right now. And it appears that, you know, Canadian authorities are approaching the use of artificial intelligence throughout their political campaigns with much greater caution compared to their uh, U.S. counterparts. And while, you know, American campaigns are extensively now leveraging AI for tasks such as script writing and, and voter data analysis, uh, Canadian campaigns are only really beginning to adopt these types of AI tools. And so in Canada, there seems to be a notable emphasis on more of the ethical and responsible use of AI in their political campaigns. For example, uh, the New Brunswick Progressive Conservatives have expressed interest in, in using AI tools to enhance their digital campaigns. However, you know, they made it clear that any voter phone calls with, uh, uh, will, will include sort of human voice interaction, uh, either through live calls or messages recorded by individuals who are just reaching out. And so, you know, this approach, I think, highlights the commitment to maintaining more of a personal connection uh, with the voters, leaving, at this point in time, AI out of it. Now, uh, with incidents such as the fake robocall in New Hampshire primaries, where an AI-generated voice impersonated U.S. President Joe Biden, uh, there's a growing concern about the potential misuse of AI throughout many of the, uh, the U.S. campaigns. And so I think Canadian legislatures and, and election authorities seem to be actively reviewing existing laws and, and regulations to really determine if you know, they are adequate to prevent such misuse. And, and it looks like Elections Canada, for example, is, is talking a lot about updates to the uh, Canada Elections Act uh, related to the impersonation to really better address the challenges posed by this type of technology. So, you know, I think the key takeaway here is that AI is recognized as a new tool for elections and its current use in Canadian political campaigns is really still limited. But uh, I, I would say within, within the future, uh, you'll probably see a lot more of it. We're speaking with our local technologist, Kevin Andrews, here on Tech Talk Tuesday. And Kevin, the prevalence of chatbots in customer service certainly on the rise, but a recent legal case involving Air Canada underscores the risks associated with relying solely on automated systems. So can you just explain how a chatbot on Air Canada's website triggered a big legal dispute and what the resolution of the case was? Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting story. It looks as if Air Canada became entangled in, in, like you mentioned, a legal dispute following allegations that a chatbot from its website provided misleading information to a customer who was seeking bereavement rates uh, for flight tickets. And so now this customer in question claimed that, you know, based on Air Canada's website's chatbot's advice, they went ahead and purchased full-price tickets instead of availing of, uh, of their bereavement rates and so are now are out hundreds of dollars. Now, Air Canada's defense was a little unusual. They argued that the chatbot was what they claim a separate legal entity responsible for its own actions. Uh, but the, uh, the Civil Resolution Tribunal uh, within uh, British Columbia rejected that argument, stating that Air Canada was ultimately responsible for all the information on their website, regardless of whether it came from a static page or an AI chatbot. So in, in its ruling, uh, the tribunal ordered Air Canada to pay the customer in question, I think it was like 812 bucks to cover the dif- difference, I think, between the bereavement rates and the full price uh, ticket that, uh, that they purchased. Now, uh, just to add insult to injury here, the tribunal criticized Air Canada not for taking, uh, you you know, not the, uh, I guess they were criticizing them for not taking reasonable care to ensure the accuracy of its uh, chatbot's information. And so really the bottom line here is, is in this case, it really highlights the importance of companies ensuring that the accuracy of information provided by their automated AI systems, such as chatbots here, uh, and it really underscores the need for transparency and, and accountability, I think, when, when you know, uh, people are using their online customer interaction. So I'm not sure this will really be the last time we'll hear a story like this. And that is our feature this past week, Tech Talk Tuesday with local technologist, or uh, as we like to call him, expert Kevin Andrews. Well, to keep it going, this week an email promotion from Air Canada rekindled the long-standing grievance among many by excluding Newfoundland and Labrador. The campaign titled There's No Place Like Canada showcased travel deals spanning the nation from Vancouver to Halifax and further claimed that their great fares will take you from coast to coast. Well, I stopped by the recent Hospitality Newfoundland and Labrador trade show and conference that took place earlier this week in St. John's. Had a chat with many people there about the Air Canada uh, issues and, of course, air access. We're going to start by hearing reaction from Federal Tourism Minister Soraya Martinez-Ferrada. I think all 
airlines have a responsibility and we have a shared responsibility to work with airlines to make sure that we're giving access to everywhere in the country because of course if you want to grow tourism you need to be able to get there and people need to move from you know one place to another in a way that's efficient in a way that is affordable and that's you know that's how we're going to build the the capacity of the country but it is a shared responsibility and that's a responsibility when you think about airlines for instance you can think about pilots you need to have pilots to flew the planes and right now we'll be going against a shortage of pilots so that's something that we need to look and address Beth Potter president and CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of Canada Air Canada has sent out an email bulletin to some of their frequent flyers saying that we have deals from Vancouver to Halifax and everywhere in between totally ignoring Newfoundland and Labrador how do you get to Air Canada to let them know that we exist you pick up the phone and you call them. Um, we've got, you know, there's some great people at Air Canada. And uh, just as an example, you know, when you do get on one of their flights and the safety video, and it's from all across Canada, I mean, they're pretty proud to be, as they call themselves, you know, the, you know, flying the flag. So I think it's just a matter of reaching out and letting them know that, you know, the country extends past Halifax. Beth, how was your travels to the province? Were there any difficulties or was it without a hitch? No, it was great. Um, I came from Ottawa and uh, I did have to connect through Montreal, but it was seamless and I got here and um, I did have a little bit of anxiety because I got a text, you know, the day before saying there's some weather in the forecast, and, but it, tr- it proved to not have an impact on me at all. John Steele, Steele Hotels. Air access. You've been a vocal proponent of the need for this, and then I just showed you a post from social media where Air Canada is completely avoiding mentioning Newfoundland and Labrador in one of their email bulletins. What goes through your mind when you see something like that? Well, you know, I mean, Air Canada have to do what they feel is best for their business and stuff, so I do get that. But the reality is, is that here in Newfoundland and Labrador, we need air access. And we got to get out and we got to make it happen. And, you know, there's big pressures on the airlines. Uh, you know, they have to return uh, uh, money to their shareholders and stuff. But, you know, Newfoundland and Labrador is a great market. And we got to go out, uh, the airport authorities, the governments, the different industries involved. And we got to make it worthwhile for these airlines to come here, not just at peak season, but for. 12 months access if we want to grow our economy in every sector there is we have to have air access to the province hello i'm valerie saltel Uh, i'm coordinator on the francophone tourism office for the economic development horizon tnl is our umbrella How important is air access and what can be done to really improve it? For the Francophone customer, tourists, they mainly come from Quebec. It's not the big issue because they come in RV. The big issue will be much, I said to them, book in advance, plan your trip. Uh, usually they are in state of mind like we are in vacation we drive our RV and we will see in Newfoundland you need to book in advance and it's much more better for the business so they know they can plan the biggest issue I see on the francophone markets is the climate who is changing. The season is from April 15, around April 15 to October at the maximum. You need a long vacation to come. Well, it's a concept for the Quebecois. They really like to drive. They like long distance. The European, they don't, yeah, not so much. We're still in the same country. We're still in the same province. Exactly. Access for the moment for the francophone markets, uh, all the markets, Europe and Canadian, it's not a big issue.
Good Sunday morning and welcome back to the best of your VOCM mornings. I'm Jerry Lynn Mackey. And I'm Ben Murphy. Let's talk some food, agriculture, and agri-food Canada's St. John's Research and Development Center and the Pie Center for Northern Boreal Food Systems. They're teaming up to enhance food security and benefit the local agriculture industry. In Labrador, the partnership is said to already be proving great outcomes for farmers like new strategies for extending the growing season, controlling insects, soil amendments, and other best practices. I reached two research scientists from AAFC St. John's Research and Development Center, Dr. Julia Wheeler and Dr. Linda Jewell, to find out more. What are the main objectives of the partnership between AAFC and the Pi Center? You know, I think I'll let Linda take that okay, one. Okay, perfect. That's all right. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, so some of the main objectives of the, the research relationship between the Pi Center and uh, Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada are generally speaking to, you know, improve sustainable uh, agriculture in northern regions of the world and, of course, in particular in Labrador. And so uh, we have the shared goal of working together to identify, um, you know, agricultural systems that are practical um, in the region. And so, you know, we, you know, we, we all agree that it's not going to make sense to, you know, try to start a research project to grow pineapples and goose bay or something like that. But, you know, working together to identify some practices um, and crops that may work well um, to grow in, in goose bay in order to improve everyone's access to locally produced foods that people are interested in eating. Yeah. And how has this collaboration benefited local farmers in Happy Valley Goose Bay? Well, you know, maybe I'll, you know, jump in there. And of course, Julia, feel free to, to add to that. Um, yep. Yeah, well, I think the, the research relationship has, has worked well and um, has also been helpful for, for growers in the region because by working together, you know, kind of in a, a research collaboration, we're often able to do things that may be a little bit risky for growers to try on their own land right away. And so we're able, for example, to do things like small plot research that are a little bit fiddly or a little bit, you know, you know, annoying for, for a grower to try to implement with larger scale equipment. We're able to trial things out and sort of figure out, you know, what might make sense for a grower to try to implement on a larger scale. Um, and, you know, we're also able to, again, like take risks on, uh, you know, in, in a research farm in a way that, you know, it wouldn't be practical for a grower to do on their own land when, you know, their, 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 their dollar is on the line. What specific agricultural challenges in northern regions is this partnership addressing? Well, there's a lot of challenges associated with growing in northern regions. And the thing with uh, northern communities is that they all have different challenges, uh, although some of them are the same. Uh, One of the main challenges uh, that we try to address with our research is the growing season. Um, As a lot of people know, uh, in northern growing regions, you may have a nice, warm, sunny summer, uh, particularly Goose Bay, Labrador, but you have uh, short growing, uh, short shoulder seasons. So that means uh, farmers are late getting onto the land in the spring. Uh, They can't plant until quite a bit later than many other parts of Canada, and they have to harvest a lot earlier. So that means that you've got like this short spring and short fall growing season uh, that really compresses the overall time that farmers have to bring their crops uh, to maturity. And now this can affect uh, the productivity of their crops and the yield. So how much they're harvesting, how much food they're producing, and how much they then have to sell. So part of our research looks at uh, season extension, which is just basically how do you make the growing season longer for farmers by improving the conditions in the spring and in the fall uh, on and around the field such that they have a longer growing season and they're better able to get a wider variety of crops to maturity. Um, So this is already a bit of a long answer, but I'll say one thing that we work on, we've tested in the past, and this is specifically we've done testing with the Pi Center. We've looked at uh, trialing low tunnels, which are like miniature greenhouses that run over the length of the field. Uh, which are just made of agricultural plastic and wires. And those raise the air temperature and the soil temperature around the crops. So sort of on a very small scale, they're, they're like miniature greenhouses that warm up the air and soil around the plants, make them germinate faster and make them grow faster. We've also worked on uh, products that are called bioplastic mulches. So these are plastics 
thin plastics that are laid down over the soil at the start of the growing season along the row where it's seeded. And they are plastics that are made of uh, biodegradable compounds, either plant-based or microbial-based polymers, which means that they're meant to break down into the soil over the course of the growing season. And what they do is they warm up the soil, they trap heat, they trap moisture, and that warms up the soil in the spring and gives those plants an earlier start. So this is some of the research that we've been working on with the pie farm, really working at this season extension. In chatting with growers in in Labrador, you know, one thing that we've certainly heard over and over again is one of the biggest challenges that growers face is, you know, the very sandy soil um, that sometimes doesn't have a high level of organic matter and that doesn't always do a great job of hanging on to nutrients in the soil. Um, And so another aspect of research that we've been working on together with the Pie Center um, relates to you know, trying to find ways to address that challenge. And so one way that we're doing that um, is a a research project that we're working on um, along with one of our colleagues in Ottawa, Ulrika McKim, um, where we've developed compost using some locally available inputs. And so, you know, that's manure from one of the local farms and cardboard that's been, you know, diverted from waste and, you know, brush material that's been, you know, cut from the side of the road and using that to generate a compost that we can integrate into the soil and that itself carries nutrients to plants, but also helps um, to provide benefits like, you know, retaining water and also hanging on to nutrients um, in a way that, you know, makes them available for plants in the longer term. And I'll put this one out to both of you. What have you learned so far that will benefit people looking for local produce in Labrador? Well, um, I guess I can start with that. Uh, One thing uh, where season extension we've looked at, um, we're looking at growing crops that are a bit more marginal in Labrador. Uh, So one of the model crops we used, like just as a test, were green beans. Uh, So one thing that we found is using season extension technologies, we were able to sort of produce uh, green beans to a a higher yield than we were able to find uh, just growing without low tunnels. So in this example, uh, we're able to grow a crop that's a bit more marginal for the region more successfully. And Linda, do you want to address a little bit where what we're looking at in terms of the soil component there as well? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, one, you know, kind of early success story, I guess I can talk a little bit about, um, again, with respect to, you know, using the compost. Um, in this past summer in our trials uh, where we grew carrots using compost um, compared to conventional fertilizer, um, we saw really a humongous increase um, in both the yield and the quality of our carrots that we were able to grow, um, again, compared to the carrots that were grown using the conventional fertilizer. And so we were really excited to see that early result and we're you know, really hopeful to see sort of what the future years of the experiment will bring. And hopefully that's something that you know, we're able to recommend to growers as a way to, you know, again, at a relatively low cost to, um, you know, improve the the amount of produce that they're able to grow. That's, of course, one of the issues with uh, growing in northern communities is the cost of inputs. Uh, Since northern communities are usually uh, close to the end of a pretty long supply chain, uh, that's easily disrupted and it's expensive bringing anything in. So anything that where we can make recommendations to farmers that are low cost or use local inputs uh, as opposed to having to ship in sort of expensive fertilizers, expensive amendments, uh, that is the sort of thing that can make a big difference. The best thing about this partnership uh, with the Pi Center is that it's just been a very good example of teamwork. Uh, we're all bringing something to the table. We have shared research priorities. Uh, the Pi Center has great location and great staff, and they're very excited about the research and disseminating the research into the communities. And at AAFC, we have a great science research team. We work with a number of great technicians here who are also really excited about this work. And we're just all really excited about the idea of feeding this work into these northern food systems and just uh, increasing the availability of fresh local produce for everybody living there. Linda Jewell and Julia Wheeler, this is fascinating stuff. Thank you both for this. 
Okay, well, thank, thank you, you so much. much. It was great to talk to you. And that is research scientist from Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, St. John's Research and Development Centre, Dr. Julia Wheeler and Dr. Linda Jewell. Over to you, Gerilyn. Switching gears a little bit now, in a recent letter to the province's Minister of Justice, the Newfoundland and Labrador Law Society expressed concerns that inmates at Her Majesty's Penitentiary in St. John's are regularly being denied basic human rights. Concerns were raised that inmates are not able to meet with legal counsel that some lawyers have been unable to communicate with clients incarcerated at HMP and that some clients are not being brought to court for appearances. Cindy Murphy is the executive director of the John Howard Society in this province. She joined us on your VOCM Mornings. What's your reaction to these recent allegations that prisoners are being denied basic human rights? Well, based on what we've been hearing for many months, um, from the folks that we work with, we certainly uh, agree in uh, what the Law Society has um, has brought forward. Um, you know, we're here regularly that inmates are having difficulty communicating with counsel, uh, retaining counsel, counsel getting in to see them, um, being able to, you know, get access to disclosure. I think it's really important to point out so the public understands that the majority of people who were at Her Majesty's Penitentiary in custody are on remand status. So what that means is that they haven't been convicted of any offence that's before the courts. So they're waiting to go to trial. And, um, you know, as recently, uh, numbers I've heard, is like 70, 75% of the people, so of the 150, say roughly, people incarcerated there, they haven't been found guilty of the current offence with their charge. So having said that, it's critically important that they're able to meet with counsel to be able to understand the charges that, you know, they're facing, to understand, um, <clears throat> you know, what, what their rights are, understand what the process could look like, you know, to be advised on that process. That's a basic human right afforded to us all, even the people in custody. How important is an inmate's access to legal counsel? Well, as I say, it's critically important. You know, many don't understand the process, or if they do understand the process, they they have a right to be informed and help inform what's going to happen next. You know, they had, the, like I said, the right to not only retain counsel, but to inform counsel about what their needs and desires are, about how things are to proceed. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's critically important to the process. So if lawyers can't get in to meet with clients, they can't get them on the phone, um, we also heard, you know, on, on a number of occasions that folks who were scheduled for court appearances um, weren't able to be transported down to court because of staff shortages or weren't able to be even escorted down to the video conferencing court area uh, to participate in the process because there wasn't enough staff to supervise. So this is problematic. And um, it has been, like I said, for a long while. I know the Department of Justice and Public Safety are working hard to fill the vacancies down there. And I think our understanding is that some are filled. Um, But that continues to be a problem Um, because, I mean, as recent as this week, I know for us as a community organization that provides services within the penitentiary, there's been two days, Monday and Tuesday, some of our staff weren't able to get in to do the work that they are contracted to do because of staff shortages. So it still continues um, and something needs to be done quickly um, to right the wrongs that are happening down there. And I did want to ask you next about why they're not able to meet with lawyers as needed. But like you say, and just to confirm, this all comes down to staff shortages? Pretty much. It's that and space. Those are the two key issues. The space has always been a problem. Uh, Appropriate meeting space, private, you know, confidential meeting space. The lawyers can, you know, meet with with their clients. Excuse me, but primarily it's a staffing issue. So because everybody who comes into the institution pretty much from the outside has to be escorted by correctional staff. So they have to be escorted from the front gate down into the prison to a meeting room or wherever it is that they're going within the prison. So if there's not enough staff there to provide that supervision, then they just they just can't come in. Same as us um, as, as staff. And Cindy, we've been talking a lot about a replacement for HMP, which we know is still at the very least years away. But what good is a new facility if there are no people to staff it? Well, this is it. That's such an important point. And I think I think the Department of Justice understands that, that, um, you know, that is a key piece of any new facility. And I, from my understanding in 
for the new prison. It's a different design altogether, which would require even more staff than they currently have. So, um, you know, that has to be part and parcel of this whole process as as we work through, you know, the new design for the new prison now that decided uh, the previous design is no longer acceptable. It's too expensive. The, you know, cuts have to be made and, <clears throat> excuse me, and things have to change. Um, but then more importantly, I think, as you mentioned, we're a long way out um, before a new prison is built. And there's so many outstanding issues at HMP that have to be addressed in the interim. It's not okay to say, okay, we're going to build a new prison. We've been hearing that for a long time, and hopefully that will be the reality at some point. But what do we do with all those different pieces that are, are problematic? You know, the staffing, the infrastructure, the, the rodents, the health care, the, on and on it goes. Uh, those things are, have to be addressed now. And we're really looking forward to the Department of Justice providing some information to us about what those interim measures are going to be until a new prison can be built. Do you think a new prison could at least help with attracting more staff and and hopefully getting more people involved in the field, knowing that they might not have to go to work at HMP every day? Absolutely. I I have no doubt about that. Um, We all know our work environment is extremely important to us and having to work not only with a challenging complex population, but in 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 crumbling infrastructure, you know, with lack of space, um, it's filthy, it's dirty, it's rodent infested. Uh, I, I can't imagine who would like to work there. And that is the executive director of the John Howard Society in this province, Cindy Murphy. Over to you, Ben. Well, get your bowling shoes out because Big Brothers Big Sisters of Eastern Newfoundland's annual fundraiser, Bowl for Kids' Sake, is back for another year. Bowl for Kids' Sake coming up in April and May and is one of Big Brothers Big Sisters' biggest and most important fundraisers of the year. Kelly Leach is executive director of BBBSNL. She joined us on Wednesday morning. What can you tell us about this year's edition of Bowl for Kids' Sake? Well, like you said, it's our flagship fundraiser. It's been around for more than 40 years, and we're lacing up again to strike down barriers for young people facing adversity. This year's event is presented by Harvey's Home Heating, and it's going to be happening at Holiday Lanes on Elizabeth Avenue. And we break it down, then into both community and corporate events. It's really an event that all ages can get involved with. It takes very little to participate. The Community Day is happening on Sunday, April 28th, and that's a a one-hour bowling event where we ask people to gather together a team of four to six people, fundraise $50 a person, and come out and join us for some glow bowling. And then our corporate events are going to be May 2nd, 3rd, and May 9th. And those are two-hour events where companies can come together for really what we consider a team-building event, Uh, you know, food, fun, glow bowling, team photos, networking. It's really a fantastic time, and, of course, it's all for a great cause to support uh, programs, mentorship programs for young people facing adversity. Yeah, and as someone who's been a part of it, I can attest that uh, it is always a great time, bowl for kids' sake. But why is this such an important fundraiser for Big Brothers Big Sisters of Eastern Newfoundland? So every year our agency has to raise 100% of our revenue. So, I mean, it's, you know, everyone's saying it since COVID, you know, the fundraising landscape has changed. It's becoming more challenging to find those dollars. So the funds raised with Bold for Kids' Sake are really crucial as the need for our mentoring programs continues to increase. We've really taken a, a deep dive into our statistics in the last couple of months to just say how have things changed and it was interesting for us to learn that you know pre-covid to the last three years ago we are more than doubling the number of inquiries those requests from caregivers to have a child involved in mentorship last year we served the highest number of one-to-one developmental relationships for young people in our history and that was through our traditional community-based program that people know about as well as in-school mentoring 469 young people were served through all programs last year and in order for us to move kids from the wait list that wait list today is more than 190 kids waiting to be matched 
uh, in the community-based program with a mentor. If we're going to do that, we really have to, you know, put our best foot forward here and uh, raise money during Bold for Kids' Sake, the biggest fundraiser event we will most likely do this year. And we're just calling on the community to to get involved. You know, it's a, it's a small act with big impact, a lot of fun, and takes a little time to do it. Do you have a fundraising goal this year? Well, we would like to see us try to get back to our pre-COVID revenue. And pre-COVID, we would raise between 120 and 140. Uh, so, you know, if we could get over that $100,000 mark this year, we would certainly love to see that happen. Very close last year. So really hoping to pull it out this year. We're off to a great start. We've had about 40 teams already sign up. But there's so much time still left until the event uh, gets here. So we'd encourage people to go to our website, Helping kids.ca and of course follow us on social media at bbbs eastern nl and i do just want to go back to the need for big brothers and big sisters here in the province and is it for both big brothers and big sisters is there a need kind of for one more than the other Yes, well, you'll, today we actually call Waitlist Wednesday. We've started now every Wednesday really sharing the need. And, you know, really the need has been for many, many years, and it hasn't changed for those who, you know, big brothers, right? We have majority of uh, kids on the waitlist. They are boys. They're wanting a big, and that's really what the need is right now we've actually had to sort of put a pause on enrollment of big sisters currently just because we're at maximum staff capacity here so unless we can hire additional staff like those professional caseworkers who really you know do the enrollment the match monitoring support of all the young people and the volunteers we can't really continue to increase as as much as we would like to so right now we're at like really high capacity we're still enrolling big brothers we would encourage them to come in we also need game on mentors in school mentors one lunch hour a week in school so you can find out a bit the different program options on the website and encourage people to you know check it out if you have an hour you could certainly become an in-school mentor yeah, and I was just about to say, if someone's listening to this and they think any one of those programs could be one that works for them and want to get involved, how can they do so? So they can go to helpingkids.ca and go right into the program options on the website, even fill out a quick inquiry right through the website. Good Sunday morning. Welcome back to the best of your VOCM mornings. I'm Ben Murphy. And I'm Jerry Lynn Mackey. Well, Tada Events is in their 20th season and they continue to sell out musical productions and they now have had to add two extra performances of their latest mounted show, Jersey Boys, at the St. John's Arts and Culture Center. It's directed by Terry Andrews. The internationally acclaimed Broadway musical tells the story of the iconic New Jersey rock and roll group Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons. However, Jersey Boys has a really interesting connection to this province. Local actor in the performance, Dan Lasby, he plays Bob Crew, joined us earlier this week on your VOCM Mornings to talk about it. What can you tell us about Jersey Boys coming in March? I mean, listen, you have a lot of nice concert music, and then you have a fully realized live Broadway musical with all the panache and the brilliant cast and the incredible costumes, and, and like you had played, the amazing music. It's just, it's kind of over the top. I, I, I was just in rehearsal last night, and it was... I was taken aback by how good it sounds even in that room, and we're not even on the stage yet, so. Wow, and it must make you feel good to sing this this kind of music as well. Yeah, it's, it's and it's got such a wide range where it has, like, the highs and lows, those really heartfelt ballads, but also, like, like Sherry, those really, like, moving kind of hits. So what drew you to the story of the iconic New Jersey rock and roll group Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons? Uh, I mean, like, I grew up in a, in a small town where we had AM radio like we have here, and so there was a lot of that played all the time. I didn't really realize how many uh, songs by the Four Seasons that I knew until I kind of went back and looked at that in, in, in preparation for the audition. Then I was like, oh, yeah, no, you got to do it. You got to go. And you're playing Bob Crew, who has a pretty interesting story. What can you tell us about him? Yes, yeah, so he um, was was a pretty famous producer and songwriter through all the way up into like the late '90s, 
Um, his father, Stanley Crew, and his mother, Mabel, they were both from Newfoundland originally. Um, his dad was from Dawson's Creek, which is, is Sandyville now, and his mom, uh, I think, was over from Heart's Content. Um, and like many Newfoundlanders, in, in an effort to make a better life for themselves and their family, they made their way down the Easter Seaboard. They ended up in New Jersey. Um, they, they started Pioneer Supermarket and raised all their kids there in Newark. So Bob was born in Newark. Um, and then he went on to write for the Four Seasons. He had kind of known them from the neighborhood. He had his own record company. He wrote Lady Marmalade for LaBelle, so wow. like a dramatic range. Um, and I think he still has some, there's still some family here, just kind of about. So I know that um, when they reviewed for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he, he would come back from time to time. This was his kind of quiet getaway from the big hustle and bustle. Oh, wow. And I'm just thinking now, my nanny's sister went down the Eastern Seaboard as well yeah. uh, during the Great Depression. That's so it. I also have family in New York and New Jersey. That's so funny. That's really interesting. Dan, what can, you, what can people expect when they see the live show? I mean, if you're not coming ready to, like, try to control yourself from dancing in your seats, I don't know what you're going to do with yourself. Uh, it's it's an incredible production with all these moving parts and all these incredible cast members. Uh, Keith Roberts is Frankie Valli, and um, I, I think, honestly, like, there's a song called My Eyes Adore You, which he, he might even be, like, on par or, like, giving Frankie a run for his money. Uh, but yeah, it's a roller coaster. It, it talks about the whole story of the four seasons from when they started out like as like nobody's kind of on the street until uh, their induction in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in the late 90s. So it's it's over the top. Dan, what's your favorite song from the musical? Oh, that's hard. Uh, I think it, it goes from day to day. Um, Maya's Adore You, like I said, he's incredible, that song. I think um, Evan, who plays one of the one of the Jersey Boys as well, he... Um, he says, Don lives rent-free in his head. I think that might be the case. It's really good. And the harmonies are so tight, so it's great. Amazing. The music is just is just outstanding. How exciting is it to have sold out the shows and to have to add two extra performances? It's crazy. I, I was just looking this morning on my way in here, and even the added dates, they're down to limited. So, like, go get your tickets now. We're running out of dates that we can add. Like, we're out. So get them now while you can. It's, it's going to be the show to be at this year. Amazing. Tell me a little bit more about the cast and crew. Uh, so we have, as, as the main four seasons, we had, like I said, Keith Roberts as Frankie Valley. Evan Smith plays Nick Massey, who is, who is a bass player. Uh, Jeff Sims plays um, Tommy DeVito, who is kind of the original guy who gets it started. Um, and then there's a varying kind of supply through there of Dana Parsons plays Mary, who's married to Frankie Valli. Uh, John Williams plays Bob Gaudio, who's the kind of creative force behind a bunch of those songs. He's the co-writer with Bob Crew. Uh, and from there you have, there's five other four seasons that people don't kind of think about as they had to keep things going through the years. Uh, you have Joe Pesci, played by uh, a Gavin, uh, because... Apparently, New Jersey in that time in the 60s just had everyone. Like, Meryl Streep is from there and John Travolta. And so uh, there's a great little Joe Pesci piece on how he has this really great connection to the the Four Seasons themselves. It, it's, I can't say enough about every member of the cast. There's nobody that's, that you should sleep on. Like, you can watch any part of the stage at any moment. Uh, and because it's just so vibrant... I think you could watch the show three times, honestly, and see something different every time. You know, that explains why, you know, the first two shows sold out. Maybe people are buying doubles. <laughs> exactly. Just can't get enough. How can people get tickets, Dan, to see Jersey Boys at uh, the Arts and Culture? So they're on sale at the Arts and Culture Center right now. Like I said, I w looked at the website this morning where you can grab them. They're all down to limited, so go get them now while you can, and uh, we'll see you on the night. Well, just like that, our time is up here on the best of your VOCM mornings. Thanks for tuning into the show. We'll be back tomorrow morning, 5.30 to 9 a.m. on your VOCM. I'm Ben Murphy. And I'm Jerry Lynn Mackey. Have a safe and happy Sunday. I'm easy like Sunday morning.